All right. Hello, everybody. My name is Luke Thomas. This is episode seven of the Luke Thomas live chat. I hope you are doing well. It is uh, Friday, the 15th of November. And um, yeah, this will be fun. We'll talk about whatever you want to get to. I put up a thread yesterday on my community tab. We'll talk about Nick Diaz. We'll talk about uh, maybe some UFC Sao Paulo. Whatever's on your mind, MMA or not, we'll get to today. So appreciate you guys tuning in. Let's get the process started, shall we? Let's do it. All right. Everyone, give the video a thumbs up if you don't mind. Subscribe to the channel as I speak to you today. At this moment, we are how many short of 110,000? We are, oof, we're almost there. We're about 58 short of 110,000. So if I can get 58 subs, usually we get a lot more than that for one of these things. But if I can get 58 subs for this, I would be most grateful. Um, all right, so thank you guys so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. Hope you're doing well. Man, I just have one of these situations where... Uh, I don't know what to do, y'all. So I got this gym I go to. All my life, I've gone to really trash gyms. Like, you know, either, or not necessarily trash, but like either a terrible Globo gym, you know, or uh, maybe like a really uh, properly suited if you were really on a direct hardcore uh, powerlifting program, right? So if you were on that, you know, chains, bands, deadlift platforms, squat racks, benches, Maybe some dumbbells, maybe some kettlebells. That's really about it. It's all you really needed for those kinds of programs. Uh, but nothing ever nice. Never went to like a really nice gym until this past year. I, thought, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm going to just, I've never joined a nice gym. I'd like to join a nice gym and see how that goes. So I did. I joined a nice gym. And it is really nice, but it's on the other side of town. So DC itself, the city itself, which I live in the city, it's not a huge city. But just to get to the gym is 30 minutes. And then, you know, you got to warm up, you got to work out, and that's another 30 minutes back. You're killing an hour just to go there. And it's like, so I went to this one that's much closer to my house, and the good news is I can get there in 10 minutes. It's like, wow, it's great. But, like, it doesn't have a whole lot, and, you know, a bunch of the machines were broken or old, or, you know, they didn't have quite have that groove when you when you pulled them, and it's like, they did have a, they did have a bunch of bench racks. They had one deadlift platform, not great. Um, they had like three squat racks. Okay. That's better, but it's like, it's a lot cheaper. It's a lot closer, but it's just not nearly as good. And I don't need anything super nice, but like, I can't follow a program because every time my kid gets finally on a sleep schedule, then she has like a sleep regression. So I'm just trying to get exercise in and volume in when I can. I'm not really like hardcore sticking to a program. I don't know. I don't know what to do. I'm trying to figure it out. I know y'all don't care. I'm just trying to tell you about my woes, which are like, you know, real middle-class woes, but Woe is just the same. All right. With that in mind, enough of my stupid-ass belly aching. Um, let's get to your questions. As I mentioned, I put up a thread yesterday and then let you guys pick what you want to talk about. The ones that get the most likes typically will get the answer, but I'm going to try and get to the ones at the bottom as well. Skip around. You do not have to donate at all. If you'd like to, I will prioritize your questions at the end, but certainly not a requirement under any capacity whatsoever. So... All right, with that in mind, salute. Let's kick this off. 
First question, can you explain what's going on at SBG and why there are multiple fighters expressing a falling out with John Kavanaugh? This is a person who was highly respect, who was a highly respected coach in the game, and this whole thing seems out of left field. Well, nothing is really out of left, out of left field. Um, you know, really, this is the kind of question that's probably better put to Pete C. Carroll uh, or somebody who really kind of specializes in Irish MMA. Uh, I do not. I tend to think Irish MMA has a bit of an outsized role in news coverage relative to how actually relevant it is at the world stage. Certainly Conor McGregor's relevant at the world stage. John Cavanaugh is relevant at the world stage. But there's a lot of overemphasis of it, um, number one. And number two, frankly, I mean, I'm not in Ireland. My hunch is that, you know, a lot of times, look, man, it's hard to keep a gym together. A lot of times business deals go bad. People think that they have one relationship and they have another. Uh, Pete C. Carroll has done some really great reporting on this for MMA Fighting. I think Tom King had a falling out. Ashley Daly had a falling out. Uh, Patty Houlihan had a falling out. I mean, there might be other ones as well. Ask him. Uh, that's the best way. I really do, I don't understand John Cavanaugh, to be quite honest with you. I don't, I don't know the man. I've never interviewed him. We had one interaction once on Twitter. And you can hear my dog barking because uh, I think my kid's coming home. So I apologize for that. Oh my God! Really? They're locked. They're, they're ringing the doorbell. Hang on. All right, my wife's gonna get it. Um, in any event, so I don't really know the guy. I had one interaction with him on Twitter, and the way it worked was, I had gotten a scoop to report a story about Dylan Dennis, and I had called. He had already been working with Connor at this point, and I'd already been. Uh, and so I called Dylan Dennis, one of Conor McGregor's coaches, which on Twitter he took like great exception to. And it was like the person who gave me the scoop described him as such. And this was a person like <laughs> quite plugged in. I'll leave it at that. And so I just I didn't think twice about it. Like, why would you bring in Dylan Dennis if you're not going to, uh, you know, really lean on his expertise in any event? So he got he took exception to it, and he used one of his smart ass lines like, uh, "Well, it doesn't matter what you think; it's what the facts really are." You know, and I and I was like, "Okay." So I mean, I'm not in that camp. I don't know that he's a uh, coach. So I said, so I even made a note of it just to find like whatever you, you call him what you want. But then he said something weird. He was like, "Oh well, you know, Dylan's just his sparring partner for Connor." I'm like, "No, sorry. I don't. Maybe he's not a coach, but he is absolutely not just a sparring partner. I don't care what they say." There's, there's no way that that is at all true, that he was just a spar- like, oh, come on in, have a role, and then be on your way, because that's what a sparring partner is. I mean, think about what a sparring partner might be for Manny Pacquiao or for Floyd Mayweather. First of all, are they going to bring in somebody better than Floyd or Manny to be a sparring partner? Like, never in a million years, so no. And then two, it's like, he ends up, you, you know, giving him, I'm sure, I mean, let's be, John Kavanaugh's a black belt in jiu-jitsu, so he knows a ton but his jiu-jitsu is not as good as Dylan's, like not even close, or as modern. Uh, so there's this sort of modernity he's bringing in. Third, I'm sure he is teaching him how to do X, how to avoid Y, how to deal with Z leg entanglement. That sparring partner doesn't really do that. They sort of give you a workout and on, on the terms of your own game plan for the most part or give you a certain look and make you work around certain problems. Um, also, sparring partners don't corner you for fights, which he did. So, like, maybe he's not a coach, but he's not a sparring partner. I don't, I don't understand that. So, I don't know what that was about. He took really, he was like, it was like weird, like, exception to it. 
he, I don't know if he blocked me on Twitter for that, but he blocked me not long after that, which is fine. Like I've said before, not everybody is for everybody, so I don't. That's fine by me. It's okay. Um, that doesn't bother me at all. Uh, but then he said something that was really weird later too, when he called like Ben Shapiro. <laughs> The intellectual heavyweight champion of the, uh, I mean, I don't know, of the world or what the thing was. And it's like, people think I'm trying to dissuade other people from conservative thought. And it's really not what I'm trying to do. My bookshelf is filled with a bunch of it. Um, but saying something like that, it's like saying, how do I explain this? Imagine some, somebody came to you and said, you know, I'm really into rock music. Now, maybe you're not into rock music, but... Um, you know, you wanted to, like, see how, what their taste level was. And, like, oh, yeah, you're into rock music? Yeah, what kind of music? And uh, and then they said Nickelback. You'd be like, you know, I got nothing against rock music per se. It's not my favorite, but I wouldn't listen to it at that level. Um, you know, this is a rule because I know Ben Shapiro is popular across MMA circles. Guys, it's like... Saying you listen to Ben Shapiro, and this is not specific to John Kavanaugh, but like saying you listen to him, this is tantamount to being like, oh, I really value the insight of Stephen A. Smith. I mean, that's sort of the equivalent of what you're saying. It's somebody who has, the only way you would trust his judgment is if you didn't have enough knowledge specifically about the various subject matter he delves into to know the difference between being a charlatan and being a subject matter expert. That would be, that would really that would only that would be the only time in which you would say wow I'm really impressed by him I mean really what you're into if you're into him is like you already agree with his worldview and you like the polemicism the fire and the brimstone the debate me kind of thing you like him when he dunks on undergrads but if you're actually what you're really into is like conservative thought at a high level you would never ever listen to him like if you want to listen to about the failure of uh, democratic institutions and how elites have ignored the middle class and uh, don't understand them, you would read Michael Lind. If you wanted to talk about how snobby the Democratic Party is and how they lost touch with the Rust Belt workers in the 1960s, you would read J.D. Vance. If you wanted to have a better idea about conservative ideas about limiting immigration, you would read Rehan Salam. If you wanted to, gosh, I don't know. Um, I mean, you could just sort of go on. Or if, you wanted a, if you wanted a theory of political government, uh, and advocating for its limited nature, you would read Robert Nozick's Anarchy, State, and Utopia. Like <laughs> you'd read, you'd read, you'd read at a higher level. Um, you wouldn't like say. I mean, it's like, oh, Stephen A. Smith. Oh my God! Like he just knows so much about sport. Who, who would say such a thing? Uh, it's just you know, you're having your worldview repeated back to you. Also, one last thing. Again, independent of Ben Shapiro or John Kavanaugh, just as an MMA thing generally. I see a lot of people in MMA do this, where they'll take a personal worldview of self-reliance, up by the bootstraps, um, you know, personal ethos, and something that has worked super well for them, or even maybe their sort of their world around them, like if they have a business or something, uh, and then they'll take that and use that as a as a method to define a political theory about the world, which you really cannot do. It's not to say that you couldn't emphasize some of the virtues of a self-reliance theory of self um, or push that in as a way to empower others or, again, make, get, make the most out of yourself. But as, a, as, a, as an organizing principle of society and dealing with political economy and social friction, 
it's an incredibly limited it, it simply cannot help you and it simply is a um, you know a very rudimentary way of looking at the world so as a general rule out there if you have a way in which you define your own existence and part of that is I'm not going to lean on people for help unless it's an emergency. I really believe in the value of hard work. I I share all these values with you. You should define your life that way. You should encourage others to live that way. That's not the same as having an identify a political theory that uh, can be mapped out at society at large and then a global world in which we live. Just keep that in mind. All right, let's move on. I don't really know much about that situation. So, okay. Would you ever go to a neutral setting like JRE and debate Jeff Nowitzki on anti-doping and USADA in the UFC? He seems to love the spotlight. I don't know if that's entirely true. Somewhat, I guess. And previously wanted to debate Lance Armstrong on there. Thanks for all your content. I really appreciate it. I mean, I suppose it would depend on the specifics. What would be the point of it? What would the rules be? Um, how long would it be? You know, depending on the, some of the specifics, sure. Um, there's this weird thing in MMA where it's like, debate me, coward. As like this way of... <laughs> Settling debates, usually from people who are actually, uh, again, not often subject matter experts. But um, suffice to say, if there was an appropriate setting that I felt like was a way to educate the audience, uh, to share an alternate perspective, to hear the perspective of the prevailing wisdom of anti-doping, sure, I'd be fine with that. But... um, it, it, would, it would depend on the specifics, I guess is what I'm saying. But in theory, in theory, sure. All right. From bad, excuse me, from not so bad to horrible, please rate the following. Well done, steak. Trendy IPAs. Men who sit down to urinate face the pain. Fighters who think you saw it as their friend. People for a clean sport. Brazil's internet. Well, I can't speak for Brazil's internet, although I suspect it's not great. All right. From not so bad to horrible. Well, people who want for a clean sport, I don't think are bad. They might be confused, but they're not bad. So I'd put them at the top of the list. Um, and then fighters who think USADA is their friend. They're not bad, but they're confused. So I'd put them right under it. Trendy IPAs. I had, I've had i had some IPAs recently that were a lot better than the ones they were making five to ten years ago. So I'd put that under it. Men who sit down to urinate. There can be an occasion for that, like if it's really dark outside and you just are tired at four in the morning. So I'll let that one slide. Well done steak is just an abomination, and then face the pain has to be the worst. So that's my order. Don't know if that makes a whole lot of sense, but that's the way that I'd go. Hypothetical, but humor me. If Habib were to move up and challenge the winner of Usman versus Colby, which would be the better matchup for him? Could he hang, or would both of those guys be just a little too big for him? Hard to say. My hunch is that they would be a little bit too big for him. Habib is abnormally strong for his size. Um, But his style is really labor-intensive. And I wonder how much more it'd be taxing for him to have to wrestle somebody who could maybe, if not match him with technical level, could make up for that with size. And then that size began to lean on him. And also, it's not like Colby and... Kamaru just sort of get through five rounds and then that's the end of it. Uh, Like they can burn through five rounds. They've got cardio for all five rounds. So they could match that and then begin to lean on him. So it's like, do I think that Khabib might be a better MMA wrestler than those guys? Sort of pound for pound, as it were? Yeah, probably. Probably I would say that because, again, the value of Colby is that, and Kamaru too, 
But the real value of Colby is that he's got real strong command of control positions. The real value of Usman is he's got good command of control positions, but he uh, really excels in uh, ground and pound. Uh, and again, just sort of relentless pursuit of the fight in that particular space. And so it's like, do I think he's like, he, he like Khabib combines both of those. Plus, uh, unlike Kamaru, I would say Khabib puts a real emphasis on submission threats and then positional advancement over time, looking for the back, that kind of a thing. Uh, so to me, he's better in that sense. But when you move up 15 pounds against guys who have great cardio and they're not too shabby in the wrestling department, gets a little dicey for me at that point. So, I mean, the answer is no one really knows. But if you're asking me about what my hunch is, my hunch is that would probably be a bridge too far. It'd be a bridge too far. But the technical specificity and ability of Khabib really extends beyond that. So, there you go. Uh, do you think Jacare will face the same fate as Luke Rockhold and Chris Weidman? He's been, <laughs> he's been real quiet. He has been real quiet. Um, and he's, I think, even tried to say, I'm not going to do what Luke Rockhold did. I'm not going to go out there and talk. I'm not going to poke the bear, so to speak. I'm not going to do any of those things. Um, that's not a thing that I want to do. And so he seems to have much more... He's living in a world where Chris Weidman, Weidman went up and failed. He's living in a world where... Not ultimately, but like in his first attempt anyway. And he's living in a world where Luke Rockhold went up and had a really bad showing against the opponent that he now has to face. So there's probably... I'm sure Jacare likes his chances, but there's probably a degree of humility involved in there. So I bet he takes this threat very, very seriously. The only component you have to really consider is how much of that that affected Chris Weidman, that affected Luke Rockhold, how much of that also affects Jacare, namely miles, damage, and to what extent he has to make a trade-off in athleticism for size. Right? Those are the sort of the the, the ways I would look at that, and some of those are just the same damage in miles, but. Uh, I think he'll probably fare better, but Jan Blachowicz, who's, by the way, Jan Blachowicz is not old. Jan Blachowicz. How old is he? Blachowicz is 36, he'll be 37 in February. So he is by no means a spring chicken, but Jacare is 39, although he's a really athletic 39. Um... It could get dicey because Blahovich, I don't think, has taken the same amount of damage in his career. Blahovich, I mean, listen to his... Okay, so he's got wins over Luke Rockhold. He did lose to Thiago Santos, and that was obviously not a great uh, great way to fight because he took a bunch of damage. But he beat Krilov, Manoa, Cannoneer, and Devin Clark. He has, he has losses to Patrick Cummins. That's wild that he lost that one in 2017. Gustafson, that would be a decision. And he has losses to Corey Anderson and Jimmy Manoa. Both of those he lost via unanimous decision. And then he had a TKO in 2011 against Sukaju, and then everything else is sort of really early in his career. He's been, you know, he's had a long career, and in that sense, there's been a ton of miles. But it's not like he's been taking, you know, serious beatings in the octagon. So he's not, to me, it doesn't seem as shopworn. Uh, there's only one way to know. Okay, we'll have to see. My, I think Jacare will fare better. To me, what might be a real big lesson in all of this is that Blahovich has just gotten better and better and better and better to the point where the win over Rockhold won't look so fluky. Or like, in other words, Rockhold goes up and you say to yourself, oh, well, 
this loss can best be explained not by Blahovich per se, who's some sort of constant in the division, but by changes related to Luke Rockhold. Like, you can explain that loss simply by focusing on him. I wonder if, in the aftermath of this fight, what we might end up saying is, yes, there were changes related to Rockhold, or, or at least an accumulation of damage, or, you know, again, I, made, I pointed out there were some trade-offs between the size and how it affected his mobility, and his mobility affected his defense. But what we also might say is Blahovich, who again avenged that loss to Jimmy Manoa and has now beaten Luke Rockhold, we might end up saying actually what really is also true is that Blahovich is much better than we had thought before. He had seemed, I think, to many to be like a really good fighter out of Europe. Uh, and it could be the case. Let's see what happens this week where he moves beyond just, well, really good fighter who came out of Europe to. No, 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 here's an actual threat in this division by virtue of a guy who just considerably got better. Luke, hypothetically speaking, if Nick Diaz were to face Jorge Masvidal, who do you think would win and why? Well, I suppose it would depend. As I mentioned in my video, I, I think before we have any further conversations about whether Nick Diaz should fight, we should make sure that he's in a position to fight. So then there's two considerations that come out of that. First, um... Nick Diaz, what kind of what kind of shape is he in today? Um, I know that he's out there giving seminars and stuff, but that's not the same as sort of how refined are his skills at this point. I mean, he, certainly he has a wealth of knowledge, which I think we can all agree to, but that's not exactly the same uh, thing. Uh, secondly, um, let's assume it's like peak Nick Diaz. How would he face? How would he do against Jorge Masvidal? That, to me, would be a very different fight than the one against Nate. First of all, could Nick even make 170? I don't know. Uh, certainly, he'd been fighting a little bit more recently at 185 later in his career. But let's assume he could. To me, he's a much bigger... I mean, I've, I've met both in person a number of times. Nick is much bigger than, than Nate. Uh, I suspect he hits harder. I think he takes a shot better. Um, both have a bit of a damage-intensive style. So he could get cut open just as much, but I tend to think that he, like, whatever, like, Jorge's really good, as you saw, at sticking and moving, of really varying his strikes, of having Nate Diaz walk into certain strikes. Um, Nick might succumb to some of that as well, but I think when he lands and then when he absorbs, he, he'd wear it better. So to me, at a bare minimum, it'd be much closer. It'd be much closer, because, again... The fight between Jorge and Nate was not particularly close. I mean, it wasn't close at all. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to make of that. I, 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 it's just hard to know. It's just hard to know. Like, who's a guy like Jorge that Nick has faced? Let me refresh my memory, such as there has been one. Uh, let's see. Carlos Condit, who's stuck and move, right, is one. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. I still might lean towards Jorge, just because, again, if we're talking about, like, how, how fight-ready is Nick Diaz, but I think he'd have his hands full. Again, if he had to stick and move, he might be able to do a little bit better, you know? Let me close this one up. 
All right. Let's go back to the questions. Uh, Luke, is it frustrating how often people ask if you will be on someone else's podcast or show as if you can just invite yourself? Do these donks not realize that campaigning directly to the people who have these shows is the best way to make some noise about our boy? I don't agree with everything you say, but in my opinion, most of your points and perspectives are solid. Appreciate that. And push back against the commercially or fan-driven ideals about MMA. Yeah. I know people are like, oh, would you ever go on <laughs> on Oprah? It's like, I mean, if invited, sure. Like, oh, what do we, you should go on Howard Stern. Yeah, I should. But I can't make Howard Stern invite me. Uh you should go on Joe Rogan's podcast. Yeah, that'd be great. But what am I going to do? I'm going to call him up. Hey, Joe, you know what you should do? <laughs> you should make room for me. It doesn't, doesn't work that. People are like, oh, with your voice of Brendan. So it doesn't, if that meant anything, it would have meant something already. Like, I mean, yes, it means something in the case of like, you know, um, obviously I do a lot of work with Brendan, but I've never, I've never, you can ask Brendan this. I've never once ever been like, yo, Brendan. Ask your boy Joe if I can get on. I've never done it. Like, either it'll happen because Joe wants it to happen or it won't. And I know we live in a world where, like, if you lobby for things on your behalf, sometimes it really works out in your favor. I'm not doing that. I'm not going to go. I mean, there's so many people who go begging to be on Joe's podcast, you know, like, oh, and they do Twitter campaigns and, uh, you know, they, they these fighters get on the microphone afterwards. Like, I'm not doing that. How do you feel about PEDs in the military? I know a lot of my fellow Marines, especially older ones, use just to keep their bodies from breaking down so fast. Yeah, I know a bunch who uh, used. But they were all fucking idiots, too. Like, I knew one guy. <laughs> so stupid. Uh, God. This idiot. Like, they just had no real risk assessment at all and management. This idiot was a, he was a first sergeant, okay? Which is an upper elite level for the enlisted ranks. He was fraternizing with some kind of like Lance Corporal female while married. So, number one, uh, you're breaking the UCMJ via adultery, which you're not allowed to do. Two, you're fraternizing. Three, when they went to search his shit, <laughs> he had all kinds of steroids in his locker. And then he got hemmed up for that. It's like, dude, let me, I mean, like, how fucking stupid, this was in Iraq. It's like, how fucking stupid are you? to not manage risk like that. It's just, I couldn't, I couldn't. And then by the then and then he had to give up all the other Marines he was supplying. There was a bunch of them that I knew. One of them managed to get out with a, a general, uh, other than honorable condition. Can you imagine spending like 20 plus years in the military and you gave it up so you could go cheat on your wife and fraternize with a Lance Corporal and you were a first sergeant? It's like, you're just throwing your career away. The answer is I don't really know. I don't really, I haven't, I haven't given a whole lot of, I, I know a bunch of them did it. Um, when I was out there in 29 Palms, it was, I don't know if it was rampant is the word, but it wasn't. I remember the first time, I, like, if you ever go to 29 Palms, 29 Palms is in the, uh, it's in the Mojave Desert. And there, and there, the first time I went there, you know, there's nothing to do in that town. I mean, if you go into the town, 29 Palms, this is a place where it looks like horror movies were, were made. And so on base, there's a swimming pool, there's a movie theater. I think like one of the, the, the Star Wars prequels was coming out at the time. This was like 99 or 2000, something like that. And I remember, it was like, there's nothing to do on that base during Libo. So we would just go get swole. Like, we would just go get huge. And you go to that gym, and dude, the Marines at that gym were fucking enormous. I was like, 
how do these dudes roll up their sleeves? If you guys don't know anything about how the Marines roll, and the Navy too, I think. But the Army rolls up their sleeves in a real tactical way, where you can tug on it, and then it just goes straight to the wrist. The Marines fold theirs over. But you can't just fold it up and look like a bag nasty. It has to be super crisp and sharp. No folds in the fabric. It has to look flat against the skin. There's a way to do it. And uh, I, I, I would have to ask him, like, how do you even fold that shit? They would have to slice pieces of the fabric off to make room as they rolled. And they'd have to do it strategically so that on the outside, um, there would be space. It, it, it would, not, it would, you couldn't tell that it was cut. But they had to do I mean, these, these guys were fucking enormous. And they never told me that they were on anything. But, like, it's like, dude, if you're a Marine at 29 Palms, it's like, oh, what's your job? Oh, I'm a bulk, you know... Uh, refueler. It's like, that's your job? Then why are you swole as shit? You know, that I mean, your job requires you, yeah, some heavy lifting, okay, but not like, it's not really a thing. And they, they would be yoked. They would be yoked. I am certain that they were, <laughs> you know, and you're not far from Mexico either. Like, I am, and this was in the 90s, I am certain that those guys were just juiced to the gills. So, I, I don't know. That That's something that... um I'd have to think more about. So that's a good. It's a good question. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is there. Um, is Zabit versus Yair the fight to make at this point? Yes, as I've said before, people who were big Zabit fans didn't necessarily love my last breakdown on him because there were ways to look at what he was doing and say, "Wow, a lot of this is really great. A lot of this is not so great." Um, he's still a fighter in development though because he's 28 years old, right? So let's see what he looks like the next time out. The one kind of constant that keeps showing up across the Bokniak, Stevens, and now the fight against Cater is this sort of third-round surge. If you notice, Zabit's numbers don't really drop off. They kind of hold. But you'll notice that his opponents, either through numerical numbers, you can just sort of numerical numbers, numerical stats, or just through the eye test, you can see that they begin to get more confidence in that third round. Some of the tricks he tries they get a beat on. I don't think that they worry too much about his punching power. He has no recorded knockdowns over the course of six UFC bouts, all of which have at least gone into the, the second round. And by the way, part of the reason that they're going into the second round is he doesn't really have, it appears, it appears, we'll see, knockout power. So the point being is his numbers kind of hold constant because he sort of sticks and moves early and then really plants and becomes sort of a, 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 a trunk boxer uh, in the third round. So he can still land but the difference is that the opponents begin to land on him a little bit more. They become much more emboldened. But then the fights keep ending after the third round. So what I would say is you could make a case, if you wanted to, that he could get the winner of Volkanovski or Holloway. Frankly, don't like his chances against either of those guys, but you could make a case that he deserves it. To me, though, the best way to go about figuring this out is I would love to see him in a five-round fight. Because there are some fair objections. Well, Luke, maybe he has a three-round camp for a three-round fight. Fair. But if you've never had a five-round fight and then you go to a title fight, that's your first five-round fight, to me there's a bit of fact-finding that's missing there. To me there's a bit of, frankly, not merely fact-finding, but contendership issues that have not been resolved, that need to be resolved at that point. Uh, and and I, I, w I would like to see it. Because maybe he answers it and looks just fine. And you're like, okay. Maybe we were all right to have some questions, but ultimately he answered them. Or maybe he doesn't. Either way, I think we have, I don't know if we have a right to know, but it'd be really nice to know. So the thing about Zabit is he looks really good. He's got a lot of weapons. He's got a lot of volume. 
But I think there's a lot of questions. And not answers, questions. Let's see if we can get some answers to those questions. A five-round fight against Yair might go a bit of a long way towards doing that, right? Even if he has to wrestle. And in fact, especially if he has to wrestle. Have you considered titling live chat episodes by date as opposed to numbering them? It'll be easier for archival purposes if someone or yourself would want to go back and relook at something you've discussed. Um, no, I haven't considered that. Uh, it's an interesting one. Here, I'll flag that. That's interesting. Um, I have to think about the SEO consequences of that, but I wouldn't be opposed to it in theory. Uh, if your house was burning down and your family was already okay, does that include my dogs and my cat? What is the number one item you would try to save if you had time? Okay, so when we say family, I'm going to assume that means dogs and cat. Uh, why does this item have such value to you and do you mind showing it off to us? Ooh, good question. Um, interesting, interesting. Uh... What would I save? Boy, well, I spent a shitload of money on this computer. <laughs> I can tell you that. I might save this computer. Um, yeah. Yeah. So maybe that, if I could do it, because that was... Folks have asked how I you know, bought this camera or this microphone or this, um, or this tower. I'll just be honest with you. I make good money. Uh, I'm not rich, but I make good money. Uh, I will, I will, I will acknowledge as much, uh, you know, I have three jobs. I make money off this. Plus I have showtime. Plus I do 15 hours of radio a week. So I work my ass off, but I, I, I make good money. I'm not rich. Uh, I'm not in the 1%, but, uh, I'm not, I'm not especially struggling for money at this point. However, um, in order to finance this operation, I have a car. I have a Honda CX, no, sorry. I have a Mazda CX five sport. It's a four door. It's, uh, I bought it in 2015, brand new. That was the first brand new car I ever bought. So that was when I was 36 years old and, uh, 35 years old. And, um, and I, it only has 20,000 miles on it because I live in the city. I don't, I buy it to go get groceries or to take my kid to the park or something like that. So, uh, I, I used that to essentially get an equity loan to pay for everything because I needed, I needed a bunch of cash up front. Uh, and I didn't want to dig into what savings I have. So I did that. Uh, so <laughs> this bad boy has, uh, this, this bad boy has some real value because I, you know, I would still have to pay those bills and I would have to lose that. But if you're talking about like sentimental things, less monetary value, um, maybe that picture of my mom, which I'm not going to show you. Maybe. Let me see it. Um, oh, you know what? I might have it here. This is all of our family documents. No, I'm not sure where that is. Um, do I have that thing there? Hang on. Let me see. No, fuck. I don't have it. Um, I have my mother's, you guys know, hold on, let me get the, you saw the focus there. 
as you guys know, my mom died in, uh, in, uh, 2003. She took her own life. She was mentally ill at the time, which we weren't, we knew, but we weren't like uh, fully cognizant of how bad it was. In any event, when she passed, we had to go through her belongings. Let me tell you something, boy. There is, uh, it is one thing to, um, you know, to deal with the tragic death of a loved one, especially when it's sudden and, and frankly violent in the way that she died. Um, you know, she used a pistol. But uh, you don't know the enduring pain of it all until you have to go through their belongings. And it wasn't like she had a ton of things left in this world. But it was enough where, I mean, it's even hard for me to talk about it right now, if I can be honest with you. It hurts. I can feel it here. Every <clears throat> when, when you deal with tragedy, man, you it doesn't ever hurt any less. Like, my mom has been dead for, you know, 16 years, man. 16 years my mom has been gone. It feels like 16 days. Every time I talk about her, I can feel, I can feel a piece of lead weigh on my chest. And I can feel the anguish of it all. It never, it never gets easier. I mean, I'm seriously, I'm about to choke up talking about it. Um, but you learn to just manage it. You learn to just sort of get through it all to varying degrees of success, right? Some days are better than others. Uh, you know, there are years went by, man, where I didn't even dream about my mom. Like I didn't even, you know, not only was she gone, but it wasn't like I had a dream where I could, you know, talk to her or even hear her voice. And then I think after like 10 years, I had a dream and, you know, you wake up and it's like, you just, uh, you've seen a ghost, but in a good way. I mean, it was like, uh, yeah, that was a weird day in my life, man, where I didn't dream about my mom for a decade. And then all of a sudden I had a long conversation with her in one of my dreams. In any event, so in going through her stuff, I found her old Lebanese passport. My mother was not, uh, Arabic. She was an Armenian who was born in Aleppo, Syria, back when Aleppo was not destroyed. And um, was, was a, she was a Lebanese national. She did speak Arabic. She spoke French, English, German. Her English was excellent. She had almost no accent. She had such a little accent that I actually could not hear it growing up. My friends could hear it, but even they said it was slight, but I couldn't hear it. Uh, I've got two things that remain of her. Uh, I mean, I've got some pictures, uh, but I've got two things that remain of her. One was I found this passport from Lebanon written in Arabic from the 1950s. And uh, her picture up here is from that. I would save I would save that passport if I could. And then the other piece I have from her is I have her old cassette from her uh, from her voicemail. Back when people had tapes for it, you know, this was, you know, my mom was a bit of a Luddite in that sense. She wasn't like super modern on technology. Anyway, so I can, I've never, I've actually never replayed it uh, since she died. I've never gone back and listened to it, but I thought if I ever wanted to hear her voice again, I could play that tape. And uh, so, yeah, I'd probably save those to be, everything else can get burned uh, because, you know, I've, again, I've never played the tape in 16 years, but if I ever wanted to again, or maybe when my daughter gets older, maybe we can play it and we can hear it. I don't know. That would be kind of freaky. But, yeah, that's what I do. So, yeah, that was one of the worst parts of her death, man. Is then you have to go, and then you have to settle her estate real quickly. Like, you know, who takes ownership of stuff? And then what are you going to do with everything? And then, like, does this matter to me anymore? Does it not? Do I throw it away? Do I give it away? Do I keep it? 
and then you have all these memories that, and like weird memories like oh we went to the beach one time with this towel or we had dinner one time with this serving ladle or you know just things like that and you have to go through their stuff dude that is a pain i don't wish on anybody that is a pain i wouldn't wish on my worst enemy man i don't think i i don't take pleasure in knowing that someone else has to feel that way about the world uh uh, it doesn't do anything for me to know that someone is suffering in that kind of a way. That is an enduring, that is an enduring pain. That is, you are just on, it feels like you are on fire and you can't, you can't put out the flame. Horrible. If Tyson Fury decides to do MMA and works mainly on his takedown defense, do you see him as a threat to the UFC heavyweight division? No, no, I don't. Guys, let's talk about this MMA fighter versus boxer crossover bullshit. Understand something. You know, look, fighters are a couple of things. They're, they're many things. Number one, at the highest level, they're incredible talents who are worthy of your admiration for the most part. Number two, they're salespeople, right? And they're salespeople who realize you get a commission check based on the size of the sale. So... Even though it might be wild to have a sales pitch um, about something, if there is even the remote possibility of getting that sale, they're going to try to make it. Three, they're also a bit delusional. Which is to say, do I think that Jorge Masvidal believes he can beat Canelo? Well, I've not, I've not spoken to Jorge personally. But my hunch is, even if he's aware of how difficult the challenge might be, is there a part of Jorge who thinks he can beat Canelo? You know, there probably is. There probably is. Maybe may a very real part that he thinks he can beat Canelo. Um, but there's also a part of him that's probably trying to get a big fat paycheck because the guy was in the trenches for 16 years. He finally hits the old Tim Robbins getting out of the pipe at Shawshank Redemption moment, and he wants to go to his beach wherever he met up Morgan Freeman with, right? He wants to make sure that that is the life that he can enjoy. He already made some big money, but when you look at the checks Canelo is getting, you think to yourself, wow, this is really a possibility. Or in the case of um, Tyson Fury growing his brand, you know, maybe he's mildly intrigued by the idea of it all or whatever. But, uh, but it's all nonsense. It's all nonsense. Guys, if they could have boxed at that level, they'd go box at that level because that's where the money is. Like, if you thought you could really box at that level, you would just, at the end of your last UFC contract, you'd just stop and go and then just start go demolishing everybody in boxing and you'd make real cash. <laughs> Why would you keep signing up for the UFC if you were really competitive and you could beat those guys? It would, that makes no sense whatsoever. Why would you sign up for a restrictive contract that limits your wage when you could just go make a ton of money beating up on people who can't handle whatever is supposed to be unusual about your game. And to be real, there are things that can be a little bit different. I've made this point before in jiu-jitsu. You go watch those MMA fighter versus BJJ guys in Metamoris, and what you'll notice is the guys in MMA often reset the conditions because they were really good at getting up underneath the bottom and then standing back up again. That is a very valuable skill in MMA that... Not that it's not valuable in jiu-jitsu, it's just not something that's particularly trained because it's not nearly as high priority over there. And that would save them from some dangerous situations. But they all lost the matches. If they could go win the world championships, I suspect that they would. If they could go and make the Olympic teams and get gold medals, I suspect that they would. 
Because, by the way, there's huge money to be made in becoming an international gold medal sensation. Believe it. Uh, and not limited to merely what you get from the medal, but from the sponsorships and everything else beyond that. If, By the way, you win ADCC, you can get 50 grand for winning your division. Like, there's a lot you could do in terms of making some cash. They just can't. They can't. It's simply not realistic. It is, of course, always possible. It is simply not realistic. You should stop taking it seriously. You should stop. They are taking you, again, when I say they, I mean the people around Jorge. Maybe Tyson's this way, I don't know. But let's say the people around Tyson. Or just the media. Forget the people around them. Let's just focus on the media. They're pushing this on you because they're taking you for a sucker. It's really what this comes down to. They believe that you have such an inability to discern talent level and to see what is right in front of your face and rather obvious that you can succumb to this. Again, I don't ever blame fighters for being competitive. Jorge has never come across to me as somebody who is anything other than a straight shooter. He is saying what he believes, and honestly, I appreciate that. It doesn't mean we need to honor everything they say. It's really not even news. It's not news, guys. If if there was a real ability to cross over into those worlds and make real money by being competitive, and when I say being competitive, I don't, I don't mean just giving it the old college try and then not getting viciously knocked out, right? Oh, well, he made it 12 rounds, but you know he got knocked down four times or something. I don't mean that. I mean winning. Not every time, but being competitive. They do it. They would do it. They would fight out their UFC deals, and they would go do it. But they don't, because that's not what their gift is. Their gift is mixing everything. Yes, they. I'm sure that there are many UFC fighters who are pretty competent to decent boxers. Um, maybe if they went pro, they could do okay. But they couldn't really beat anybody at the upper echelon. They probably wouldn't be big stars. And short of some kind of miracle, this is all a giant ruse. Do not take it seriously. Do not, I don't even want to talk about it anymore past this. They are... People who push this narrative, other than the fighters who I think are just so competitive they believe this stuff, they're taking you for a sucker, man. Don't believe it. Don't buy into it. Don't accept it. It's not real. Um, why were you in such a bad mood on morning combat this week? I don't think I was. Was that a bad mood? Oh, no, it was two weeks ago. It's because I had, I had no sleep. But that was my fault, so what are you going to do? What are the IPs you consider drinkable and that they are easy to find in the D.C. area? Okay, good question. I will tell you which one. Um, they make an IPA at Right Proper Brewing that is so good that I just can't get enough of it. It's called Raised by Wolves. Uh, it's 5% ABV. Here's how it's described. Uh, juicy, hoppy, fruity, a medium-bodied, aromatic, dry-hopped pale ale. Not quite an India pale ale, nor a typical American pale ale, although it's labeled an IPA. Uh, we brew raised by wolves to highlight the rich flavors and aromas of hops rather than their bitterness. Oh, This beer has aromas reminiscent of lush, tropical citrus, and stone fruits with a juicy body that you can sink your teeth into. Highly recommend Raised by Wolves. I love that beer. That's one. You can, again, you know, is it a traditional IPA in that sense? Probably not, but um, it's excellent. So there you go. 
right proper. And they have a location in Northeast. And then they have a full-on restaurant right next to the Howard Theater, if you're ever in town. And you can go there and get food, too. Food's pretty good as well. Go there. Good stuff. Luke, how do you see the Sandhagen-Edgar fight? I'm going to put this over here. Because I want to see my other information, my stats. On this side. There we are. There we are. Okay. How do you feel about Sandhagen Edgar playing out? You know what? I love this fight. This is such great matchmaking. I love everything about this fight, and I'll tell you why. Sandhagen, first of all, we don't know how Edgar's going to look at 135. My, my hunch is he'll look good, but exactly what kind of physical trade-offs there might be or gains there might be, right? Is he stronger at 135 and maybe a little bit less quick or maybe the opposite of those? I don't know. Like, I'm curious to see exactly how he looks at 135, so that's that's interesting. Um, Sandhagen has Sandhagen lands over seven strikes a minute, so he just has constant volume. Frankie's much more subdued at around three or so. So you've got Sandhagen landing, landing at twice the rate. Plus he is going southpaw, orthodox. It's going high. It's going low. It's fast. Like there's just a lot of creativity. He makes reads. He makes adjustments. If that fight stays on the feet, I don't really like it for Frankie. But here's the key consideration. What is Corey Hagen's, uh, excuse me, what is Corey Sandhagen's takedown defense percentage? It's 27%. That is very low. Now, part of that is because he takes a lot of risks in being able to take them down. Like, he makes himself available to take down. There are times where guys take him down and he'll just go right to his guard and start to work from the guard play there, which is to say, if someone told him, okay, in this fight we're not going to do that, how much better would his takedown defense be? And I suspect it would be a lot better. Uh, but the thing about it is, is, you go into that Max Holloway fight, it was a similar consideration. On the feet, I just didn't like Frankie's chances to beat Max Holloway. He really has to mix it up. Getting the takedown is such a key component for him because, number one, he's got great submission defense. He's a black belt in jiu-jitsu. He's got good wrestling. He can pass. He's got a lot of ability to control there. He's got good ground and pound. He's a formidable threat there, but then it just enables him to mix it up, and that really brings his striking to life. If he can't either get the takedown or establish some kind of takedown threat against Corey Sanhagen, I don't like his chances. If he can, everything changes. What really pisses me off about this fight, though, is that it's three rounds as opposed to five. Uh, if it was a five-round fight, I think that might actually increase Frankie's chances, but it's three, and you got Sanhagen, who's a strong starter and a fast adapter. You know, Frankie's going to he's gonna, he's gonna have to get to work. He's going to have to get to work in that one. So, really interesting contest. Love the old versus new. Love the sort of, uh, I won't call it novelty, but the intrigue about Frankie going down a weight class, his third weight class in the UFC, and how competitive he can be and, and what it means. What it might do for Sandhagen if he wins in terms of boosting his popular appeal and his visibility. Going head-to-head with Bellator. Man, there's a lot to like about that night. There's a lot to like about that particular fight. And... It should be extremely interesting. That's really excellent matchmaking because I don't think it's fatal for either guy if they lose. A little bit more for Edgar than it is for Sanhagen. Because you look at the guys that uh, that uh, Edgar lost to. I mean, he was a champion at 155, and he was a championship contender at 145, losing to Holloway, Aldo twice, and Ortega. Either people who held the title or people who fought for the title. That's it. He didn't lose to anybody else. So if you lose to Corey Sandhagen at 135, what does that tell us about his future? If past his prologue, 
it stands to reason he's going to be somebody who either holds a title or fights for it. Kind of interesting. Um, how is the Morning Combat's podcast rating doing? It is one of the best MMA podcasts, but most of the MMA community doesn't know about it. Well, thanks, I guess. Uh, <laughs> the reality is we have our work cut out for us, man. We had to start our own YouTube channel from scratch. I think as we speak today, if memory serves, we're about 26K, which we've had for not very long. Let me see. Let me see that. Let me see that. Um, 26.1. So just since last week, we added 700 subscribers, which is I'm happy with. Um, but we got a long way to go. You know, we were on the Below the Belt channel. We were cruising. I was really happy with our numbers. And I'm happy with the numbers given where we're at. But we had to take a huge step back. Ultimately, take a, it's, it's look, it's a much smarter, smarter long-term play. It just comes with a lot of short-term pain uh, to build a channel from scratch, but we're on our way. So, like, do our numbers, you know, I think we're averaging around 50,000 or so, maybe 45 for the morning combat. My morning combat dissecteds are kind of all over the place. The last three have not been great, but the last three, because I missed 244, have all been, like, small events like UFC Tampa and UFC Moscow, which nobody watched. You know, but then my one for Israel Asanya did 130,000 views, so um, those are kind of all over the place, but... You know, uh, are we on the right track? Yes. Is Showtime very happy? Yes. Are there big plans for it in 2020? Absolutely. So uh, for anyone who has subscribed to that, I really appreciate it. Uh, I'll go back in and put a link up here later on. You can check out if you want to watch it. Subscribe to Morning Combat. There's nothing like Morning Combat in MMA or frankly combat sports where we're willing to just be honest with the audience. We don't have fighters on. We will on occasion have fighters on. But I don't want fighters on who are just going to be like mealy-mouthed about it and not really say how they feel. And I know some answers are kind of complicated, the bigger ones. Okay, fair enough. But, you know, day-to-day -day talk, if you're going to come on a show like that, say what you mean, man. And like, oh, people get mad in the industry. Okay, well, then people get mad in the industry. So what? I mean, you're just going to sit there and just try to live in an industry when no one ever – like. What is it that I really do? I don't go to shows. I, on my radio show, I'll have fighters on on occasion, but I'm not. That's not really like a big feature of my show. The last two days, I had Corey Sandhagen on, but like the last two days, that's three days, I had one fighter on. It's because it doesn't really mean anything to me unless it's a special occasion. Uh, and I do 15 hours a week. What's the what? What is my advantage that I have over others? Well, one, uh, I'm a student of the game, and I try to share whatever accumulated knowledge that I have with you guys. Number one. Number two, I suppose the contrarian thing, although that's not like an in, that's not intentional. It just ends up being that way. But three, uh, people are frightened of honesty in this business. I don't have a huge production facility. I don't go to shows. I don't do sit downs with the most important names in the industry. I, I'm just, I just tell the truth as best I can determine it, and I try to be fair and I try to be reasonable. I don't go out and say salacious and slanderous things. Uh, just for, you know, I'm going to do the old Skip Bayless hot take thing. I don't try to do that. And I'm right and I'm wrong like anybody else is, but I make a good faith attempt. It is wild to me that I'm able to produce an audience just by doing that. That tells you how in short supply that it is. That somebody like me sitting in my old, this is my old uh, bedroom. I've converted it to a studio. Sitting here with a Sony a7 III. On OBS, I got a lighting system and then a PC tower and a Sure microphone. Just with that, I can cultivate an audience because honesty is in that much of a short supply. <laughs> it shouldn't be that easy. 
It shouldn't be that easy, but it is. Because that's the way things are. It's just wild to me, but here we are. Whatever happened to New York Rick? I thought I saw him at UFC 244. I'm not sure if he saw me or ignored me. I'm not suggesting that he did. Uh, I thought I saw him at UFC 244. I think he works for ESPN. It's a better question for him, right? Just hit him up on Twitter. How long is too long for a hot dog or sausage? Ooh. I don't know, man. Long time. It's got to have, like, visible mold on it. Uh, yeah. DC's got one. I don't have, I don't have the, I mean, I, I don't eat pork. But uh, DC's got one uh, famous hot dog called the Half Smoke which is um, half beef, half pork. And you can get it at uh, this place called like Ben. You can get it a bunch of places, but you can get this famous one called Ben's Chili Bowl. DC is sort of known for the half smoke. Ice tea or ice cube? In general, ice cube. But cop killer is certainly an important contribution to our... Um, but then again, so is no Vaseline, although that's different. That was more personal. I mean, they both got their, they both, Coco is, who doesn't love Coco, right? So they both got their virtues. Luke, with Zufa boxing in the works, do you think that Zufa will pay their boxers in accordance to the boxing market, which must have higher average salaries than at least 90% of the UFC fighters? I don't know how they're going to be competitive without it, uh, unless their plan is to home grow somebody and then lock them into a contract that's like difficult to get out of, but like... You want Canelo services. Okay, DAZN's paying him 35 mil a spot. How are you going to get Canelo services if you're not doing that? Maybe you don't want that portion of the market. Maybe you want a different portion of the market. You want him just a, a shade under that, like a Devin Haney type? I don't know. Like, how do you get Manny Pacquiao unless you're paying him stupid money? Because somebody else is willing to pay them stupid I, I don't I don't know I don't know I'm really curious to see by the way October came and went here we are halfway through November still no announcement so uh what do you think about Luke's upcoming grappling bout at Polaris oh you must mean uh Rockhold what do you think about Luke Rockhold's upcoming grappling bout at Polaris and what are his chances to win I'm excited to see the best part of his game in action well here's the thing Nick Rodriguez is only a purple belt so you would say well Luke should have his way with him and Luke is a very very good grappler and he's big. Here's the problem. Uh, again, I have to go back and review their rule set exactly because I don't think they, they match ADCC exactly. But it's like if Orlando Sanchez and Muhammad Ali and, you know, you name it out there at ADCC can't beat him, why would Luke Rockhold be able to? If it was a gi... Forget it. I think Luke Rockhold would tear him apart. But you got to remember what like Nick Rodriguez does. He doesn't really know the full breadth of jiu-jitsu. He knows some things, but he's got a real specific game plan. He's got a real specific system of what to look for, what not to look for, when to avoid, when to engage, powered by the brilliant John Danaher. And so he's able to maximize his strengths while minimizing his weaknesses. Um, you know, if you can get to his back, yeah, he's pretty vulnerable. But getting to his back is really difficult. Like in the best guys in the world, in Nogi, 
have a really hard time doing it by virtue of his game plan, his athleticism, and you know some of the trickery that he that he is involved with. So, um, I guess we'll see. Maybe the rule set changes that up. But again, uh, if if multiple time world medalists and ADCC vets and ADCC medalists can't do it. It's not clear to me exactly what Luke Rockhold has going for him other than potentially the rule set could change things. Again, going back to Frankie, we'll skip that one. Um, do you see the Kaepernick workout as a PR stunt? Seems like a hard sell considering the story was relatively under the rug at this point. Why bring it back up unless they're using it, using this to help teams avoid backlash of bringing him in individually? Well, I guess there's like 11 or 12 or 13 teams because I think they added the Seahawks and the Cowboys late. Yeah, if you look at some of the mechanics of this one, they're like, oh, we want you to do it on Saturday. And then his team is like, but a lot of coaches can't travel for that because they have games the next day. Can we do it on a Tuesday where a lot of teams are off? NFL says no. They're like, okay, can we push it to a later Saturday so we can maybe you know, get a little bit more ready, maybe recruit some more people to come? NFL says no. Um, and then didn't even tell them that there was going to be media availability and, it, you know, look, the NFL doesn't want Colin Kaepernick, and they probably have to do a f few things to cross their T's and dot their I's to make sure that he's no longer relevant. The other part of it is it's like, dude, what are we in, week 10 or 11, 12, whatever we are at this point in the NFL season? Like, which bubble teams, in terms of the playoffs, need a quarterback? The Bears, maybe? The Colts? But, like, does he want to be second string? Will he take that kind of money? And also, he's been out of the league three years. Even if you want to make an argument when he was first exiled that he was really good and you could easily make that argument at that time, how is he today? Like, I don't know. I, the whole thing is, the whole thing is, uh, does it, I mean, look, whatever you think about Colin Kaepernick, you really think the NFL is trying to do this by the book? <laughs> you think the NFL is trying to do this? Like, let's make sure we're super fair to Colin. Like, come on, y'all. Hi, I'm from Mexico, this person writes. I want to ask about politics. Well, I'm not going to get into all of it, but I'll, let's entertain this for a little bit. How does the USA media cover the events that are happening in Latin America, specifically Chile, Ecuador, Bolivia, and Venezuela? Well, they're each kind of different. Boy, it's always so funny to me how, uh, you know, everyone's like, oh, you know, uh, socialism, really? Uh, you want to explain Venezuela? That's what socialism does. It's like, well, then... Okay, maybe that's true, but what is your ex explanation for Chile? Y'all still want to privatize Social Security? Because that shit ain't working. Um, I, went, I went to a Cato Institute in for a weekend. A Cato Institute, like, not getaway, but a, a symposium on privatizing Social Security. And they were utterly convinced about it. And Chile featured prominently in as an example of a place where instituting democratic norms and free market reforms, including but not limited to the privatization of social security, yielded much better financial returns. And in the end, it turns out that that was one of the, not, that wasn't the thing that lit the, 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 the flame, so to speak, in Chile, but a, that was a big one that people felt like the returns they were getting were, it was like a, it was like a, a, a Certainly not worth it to be privatized, which is kind of funny. Everyone who is banging the pots and pans about socialism in Venezuela, which I'm not opposed to per se, you know, there's certainly many critiques you can make of the handling of that economy. I mean, it is a abject failure to be clear, but uh, they're all they're real quiet when it comes to Chile, the model of democratic reform and 
free market reforms. And, you know, a little intellectual honesty both ways, I think, is, is warranted here. How do they cover it? The USA does not do a good job of covering Latin America. As a general rule, you want good coverage of Latin America, you typically have to go to UK media, BBC, The Economist, or some sort of mainstream places um, that you can get You can get some much better news. The, the US is not good at it at all. Uh, in fact, in Bolivia, there, at least in terms of covering Bolivia, there's a debate about whether or not it's even a coup. I mean, there are some real issues to ask about some of the democratic reforms, so to speak, that Morales tried to, or not even reforms, norms that he tried to ignore uh, and how much that had engendered. I mean, Bolivian politics is incredibly complex, and I barely understand it. But that much is clear that there might have been a real nascent, uh, not not all Andean or Andean um, uh, people supported him. Most did, but not all. Uh, I think he had alienated a lot of the urban middle class and elite, and so there was some resentment there. But you know, when the military comes in and says, "Hey, it's time to go," I mean, it fits the definition of a coup in every capacity. What's you know? But yeah, I think in general, though understanding some of the, I mean, if you've ever been to Latin America, it's a, it, for example, it is amazing to me that this has not spread to Colombia, having been there many times. Dude, the social, I say this all the time, whatever you think about the social inequality in America, and it is real, and it is a problem, and it is absolutely having ramifications for social friction. It is infinitely worse in Latin America, where do they have a, a, a de facto caste system down there if you are a minority and poor down there buddy that's the way you're born <laughs> that is the way you are going to die um and again that's that's in, in large part true here it is way more acute down there and there is real deep-seated pessimism skepticism anger towards government and its inability to function properly as well as resentment about the lack of social mobility. And you have weak leadership there, like Yvonne Duque, who was elected as the sort of protege of Uribe. And now he is, I mean, his popularity is at hovering at like in the teens. I mean, can you, I mean, think about this. Trump is the most historically, in terms of the advent of modern political polling, whatever your opinions about him, this is a fact. He's the most unpopular president since political polling was, was essentially uh, done at the national level. So let's say, uh, the last 80 years or so, from a measurable standpoint, he's the most unpopular. He's still hovering in the high 30s, low to mid 40s. Okay? There's still a sizable chunk of the American public who really supports him. Duque is sitting in like the low 20s, high teens. I mean, can you fathom how unpopular you have to be for that? And so there's wondering if like some of the unrest might spread to Colombia where some of that is happening. I can't believe that it hasn't already done that because you see it in Chile. You see it, as you mentioned, in Ecuador. Venezuela is sort of just a story of economic collapse, which is a little bit different. Uh, and Bolivia is a system that's a little bit more complicated on its own. But like that deep-seated resentment, man, it is everywhere. Argentina is a fucking nightmare mess too with constant IMF bailouts and you can't go get money from the ATM. I mean, it's... It, <laughs> There's many, many wonderful things about Latin America, and the people down there are warm and friendly, and the culture is deep and interesting. But the governance of that place is a lot to be desired. Uh, from here, it seems like the difference between the Republican Party and the Democrat is very small in that they respond to the economic interests of the business who sponsor them. Yeah, I think both parties are pretty reprehensible in that regard. I do not say that Latin America does not happen, but the idea of the 21st century socialism seems to be more present in the Latin American left. I had to use Google Translate. I'm not sure what that last question means, so we'll just move on. Is banana bread the greatest bread, especially with chocolate chips in it? Ooh. 
Um, boy, that's a tough one. Is beignet, would you call a beignet bread? Because it's got the powdered sugar on top. Um, I'll say yes, because I can't... Yeah, but is carrot cake a bread? Like, banana bread's not bread, it's just cake, right? It's, I mean, it's a cake without frosting, basically, right? It's like a muffin. So in that sense, I would say no. I actually prefer a blueberry muffin whenever I have muffins. Eat shit. Uh, one live chat, you held up your phone. It looked cool. Is it a Galaxy Note? Yes, this is the Galaxy Note 10. This is my daughter. Right there. She's pretty cute, huh? Ooh, who called me? Who sent me some texts? Let's see. I don't know. I don't know what this is. Um, yeah. And then, here, has the S Pen. I don't know all those motions that they showed, but, like, you can do this. You know? Mostly, I just draw dicks and send them to my friends because I'm five years old. Uh, it's true. I, I just, I get bored and I'll just start drawing dicks and sending them to my friends. The one thing I'd say, you see the three cameras on the back there, right there, see that? Uh... The one thing I would say is it's okay for things like selfies and uh, it's good. It's good for taking selfies and then like, you know, photographing your food or whatever. Where it really excels is like big picture landscape stuff. If you're trying to take pictures of like a mountain range or like a beautiful cloud or like a rainbow or, you know, I don't know something in the distance, it really is good for that. For the other stuff, it's fine, but it's really powerful. It's got 5G. I don't really use the 5G, but um, yeah, it's a great phone. It's a great phone. Uh, do you feel uncomfortable sharing your personal life with a bunch of strangers and sycophants? Sometimes. Sometimes, but not really. There's a lot of things I don't tell you guys, and I never will. Um, but I don't know. We live in an age of people want to get to know you, you know, Part of what, what, what cements this connection is the knowability of it, right? And a lot of people who want to maintain distance, I think you can do that and succeed. I don't think you have to share all things or everything, but or even many things. But I have found that a degree of candor about your life really resonates with audiences uh, on occasion. Uh, do you stretch before you lift? Yes, but I mostly do a lot of warm-ups. I always do face pulls virtually every day. Uh, or every time I go to the gym, I do face pulls in, in different different ways, different kinds of setups, different rep counts. Um, but uh, I try to activate. I mean, yes, there is some stretching of all, particularly lower body. I have to really stretch my hamstrings because then it pulls in the lower back. But in terms of like activation of the muscles, a lot of the things that I do pre-workout just involve warming them up. Uh, okay. All right, it's 1.15, so I want to make sure I get to the stuff that I didn't get to related to the uh, questions. Here we go. Should Yair and Zabit fight for number one contender, as we went to before? Yes. Will you watch Bigfoot Silva next fight on November 28th? I absolutely will not. Am I the only one who thinks Habib will fight Connor? They're constantly going back and forth, and Tony seems to have fallen off the planet. 
No. Seems like Habib has no interest in fighting Connor, at least not in the immediate sense. And Tony is, I think, ready and deserving. And there's been hints that they've been working on it. So, seems like you're off. I'll be in D.C. for UFC D.C. What is the best place to grab lunch uh, on a Saturday there? Did you see the number one restaurant in the country was named in D.C. this week? Uh, Seven Reasons is what it's called. I took my wife there for her birthday. It is awesome. Not too expensive either. Seven Reasons. Check it out. It's on 14th Street. Um, so I would say, okay, if you want a nice burger, go to Duke's Grocery. They make a killer burger. Uh, everyone goes to sort of the, the major stuff, founding farmers, blah, blah, blah. Um... You know where you should go? Go to Union Market. Go to, ah, oh, what's the name of that place? It's kind of newish. Go to this. the food at this place and the cocktails are out of control. Go to St. Anselm. A-N-S-E-L-M. Oh, my God. They make killer food there. Super killer. Go there. A long time ago, you mentioned a drill sergeant or Marine. Drill sergeants are in the Army. Drill instructors are in the Marine Corps. So I'll correct you and say, a long time ago, you mentioned a drill instructor or Marine who was a warrior, and in tough times, he would just keep yelling to your squad, stay frosty. Could you tell us a cool story about him? Um, no. He got real injured in Iraq, so no. Sanhagen, next 135 contender after Edgar fight. Could be. Someone says, love the show, Luke. Keep it up. Thank you, Juan. Is the development of a PI in China and Mexico where the average humans are a little smaller great news for the future of the 125 and 135 division? I would probably argue it has implications beyond that. But is it good for those divisions as well? Yes. Karate-style footwork combined with a good defense style, close range is the future of MMA. The get in, get out without getting hit is best for MMA because of the small gloves and the natural longer distance used in MMA. To the extent that one can pull that off, yes, there's certainly a benefit to that. It's a very, very hard thing to do, and you have to do a lot of that from early childhood development. So it's not something you can pick up after wrestling at University of Oklahoma at age 22. So it says, you and Brian have great chemistry in Mortal Kombat. You mean morning combat. Did you notice it straight away from when you guys worked on the MMA beat together? Yeah, I thought he was really funny. I mean, here's what we try to do on Morning Combat. It's not just to be honest and give you great insight. We try to have laughs, too. Like, everybody in MMA is so, like, wound up so tight. No one wants to have a little fun. Well, let's have a little fun. You know, and he loves to talk about two dudes <laughs> going tip to tip at weigh-ins. Hi, Luke. I've put on a 10-fight bet, and I got seven right so far. I'm waiting on Jacare, Tito, and Nunez to win for about two two thousand five hundred. Should I be confident or anxious? I'd be confident, actually. The Jacare one is dicey, but the rest of them shouldn't be. So it says I have a sense of pride in being a longtime UFC fan. It's fun to see so many new fans fall in love with something I've known to be awesome for a while. That's cool. That's a good attitude to have. I can appreciate that. Um, and, the, and there's always new ones coming in, man. People are, in combat sports, a lot of people like there's really two kinds of fans that are hardcore. One is the ones that like have this real longevity with it. And then the other ones are ones that have these like these intense passionate relationships and then they kind of fall off. And sometimes they come back, sometimes they don't. But the ones to be there for a while are they're always fun. So it says I respect Connor as a businessman. However, can you address how he implemented the same MO from the Cage Warrior days? 
and applied that to the UFC, never defending his titles. Can I? I mean, I'm not sure what there is to address. Keep doing what you're doing and love your work. I mean, I appreciate the contribution. I'm not sure what to say. The same MO from his Cage Warrior days and apply that to the UFC? Yeah, it's well documented. Someone says there's no excuse for a man to sit and piss. None. Not even if all the stalls are filled. Then you could, then you could stand at the other one. I mean, I don't do it, but I... Someone mentioned like when it's dark and you're just you don't want to risk urinating all over the floor, you just do it when you sit. You know, I, I, I think you can make an exception for that. What's up, devil? This person says, lost seven now for my platoon to suicide. No matter how much time passes, I know the horrendous feeling. Awesome to see a fellow Marine achieving success, doing her thing, and never bowing down to the man, SF0311, which means he was infantry. Um, so first of all, Semper Fi uh, number to them. Someone asked me the other day, like, oh, what's... uh." Someone asked me, it was like, um, you know, do you appreciate it on Veterans Day when people thank you for your service? And the answer is, of course, man. Like, you, you, it is much harder in this world to say a nice thing to somebody than it is to say a mean thing. So I always really appreciate it when someone goes out of their way to say something nice, particularly about the, the, the veterans. But, but understand that there are many veterans who are succeeding wildly in this world. They are like Brian Stan. They are CEOs. Um, mid-level management, they have families, they have lived great lives, but there are many of them who are doing quite poorly to the point where you all know, you're noticing that not only suicide rates are high, but they're now committing suicide in the parking lots of the VA because they feel like no one is listening to them or hearing them or helping them. And the only way to get attention for their cause, whether it's VA bureaucracy or some other kind of compounded problem is to off themselves in parking lots. You really want to thank a veteran and you really want to help them. I don't care what party it is and I don't care where they're from. If you have an opportunity to vote for somebody who takes veteran issues seriously and has a platform and a plan, whether it is local elections or whether it is somebody at the national level and they plan to do something about it, vote for that person. That is how you can help them. If there are local initiatives to help veterans, vote for them yourselves. If there are politicians, again, who are making real pledges to do something about it and they've got good ideas, go after them. I don't care what their party is. It doesn't matter to me because, frankly, both parties are kind of asleep at the wheel on this one. Uh, I mean, there, there is, if there is anything bipartisan about Congress these days, it is that neither party is doing a whole hell of a lot to remedy the situations that veterans are in. So do that. The thanking people is nice. It doesn't go nearly as far as your vote at the ballot box. Uh, thoughts on the recent Thy Art Is Murder album? I have not heard a single track, man. I, I'm behind on that. I'm going to see them in, in a couple of weeks. Opinion on karate-style footwork combined with a good defensive style close range? Yeah, I've already sort of been over that, and then someone else just gave a buck. All right, y'all. Appreciate you watching. Give the video a thumbs up. Subscribe. Do that whole bit. Really appreciate that when you do. Uh, what to plug? What to plug? That's it. There's anything else to plug right now. I am not going to be doing a post-fight show for UFC Sao Paulo because three of y'all are going to watch that. But I will have the second part of the Gordon Ryan interview up this week. So be on the lookout for that. And I'm getting a haircut tomorrow because it is long overdue. Jesus Christ. Um, all right, boys and girls, thank you so much for watching. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, one of my favorite things to do is this. Until next time, stay frosty. <laughs>